This is Celluloid Jelly, a podcast featuring a couple of ex-video store guys who still just love talking about movies. I'm CJ Talbot, and joining me as always will be Cesar Alejandro from Filmsmash.com. This episode features the 1960 Best Picture winning Billy Wilder comedy classic, The Apartment. All right, guys, welcome back. Uh, This is episode 44 of Celluloid Jelly. Uh, I'm CJ, and joining me as always is going to be Cesar. Say hi, Cesar. Hey, everyone. What's going on? What's going on with you, my friend? Not much, I guess. Living the dream. Yeah? Working those six-day weeks? I guess so. (laughs) Living the dream. (laughs) How is Collector's Corner these days? Uh, doing pretty well. Yeah? I think uh, a lot of interesting uh, comic books are coming out right now, so uh, I think uh, people are pretty excited about X-Men in particular, so... Uh, why? That, is someone uh, new well, writing it, or are they just going into like a, an, an unusual or, or interesting story? Well, they're kind of... Um, the X-Men, I, this is also tangentially movie-related, too, have, um, in the comic books, kind of seen a bit of a decline. Okay. Um, not the least of which people uh, suspect because of the Fox movie rights and Disney not wanting to promote a property in comic book form of something they can't profit from sure. uh, in movie form. Uh, so the X-Men generally have kind of uh, lost their way, I guess, a lot of people felt. I necessarily didn't feel that strongly um, that that was the case. Uh, but uh, in the last month or so, they've been consolidating the stories with like uh, and the characters in a storyline um, between two comics called House of X and Powers of X, um, and those have been doing incredibly well. People are excited about X Men comics in a way they haven't been in years. Yeah. So, now X Men's been around for what, like fifty five years at this point? Just the sixties, yes. Okay. So, like, what's the current lineup of X Men? Like, are they still in like the classic lineup with like Professor X and Cyclops and those guys, or do they have a completely well, new lineup? In the that's comics? one of the things about this uh, this storyline. It's bringing characters who have who've been missing um, for a while, and you know, your established characters are kind of hoping to kind of bring them together in a way to relaunch them to make them familiar again to everyone. Um, Can you give me an example? What started as one of the um, the big pluses about having mutants in comic books, you know, Stanley, uh, you remember, I remember him saying in an interview that, like, you can't always have someone being bitten by radioactive spiders or, you know, being hit by gamma bombs. So let's just make heroes be born with something. And that would be, uh, you know, the way they got their powers. Uh, that started off pretty brilliantly, I thought. But over the years, with so many characters just being born with uh, super abilities the X-Men lineup got pretty swollen. So there are so many characters that exist that, you know, these books are, um, you know, letting people know what they've been going through uh, because they've been spread out and put through the ringer and everything. Um, You're going to see a lot of your familiar characters back. The ones that most people know, which I would say would probably be the original lineup plus the X-Men from the 1990s animated series lineup. Those are the ones that are still very familiar, but uh, ones that have made a bigger splash in recent years are also going to be there. So we're still waiting. It's still uh, a couple more issues to finish the storyline before they do an X-Men number one for real again. So Okay, cool. Nice. Um, 
Well, aside from comics, uh, have you been watching a lot of movies? You know, do you have anything you want to recommend? Um, yeah, well, actually, uh, just this week I watched, um, it's the third, it's a Korean film, it's the third film in a series, uh, the Tassa series, which is a, a series about gamblers and swindlers. Okay, um, sounds, sounds up my alley. Yeah, this film's called Tassa One-Eye, One-Eye Jack, um, and, you know, it's about, actually, I just wrote a review, so it's probably gonna go up later today. I think I've heard of this. Yeah, there's, a, the first film's from 2006, the second film is 2014. I want to say um, they're based on a Korean uh, comic series, um, and they're always about like gamblers with really high stakes. Usually, someone um, gets recruited into some kind of not necessarily a heist, but a big swindle. Uh, and if you get caught, usually it ends up in either getting killed or getting some some body part cut off because they play for keeps in the, the gambling <laughs> world of Korea. So, um, so one of the things that's kind of surprising is you know the movies themselves are certainly influenced um, at least minorly by the style of Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven films. Oh, okay. Um, but, they, but they also have, you know, the mentioned, you know, body part removal brings like a very gory and kind of horish element to to the proceedings. Um, it's kind of yeah, like... A, that's uh, an interesting juxtaposition. That, yeah, well, it's kind of like the threats that like Al Pacino and like Andy Garcia give to like, um, like Danny and his crew if they caught him. Like if you actually see them carrying that stuff out. Okay. Yeah, so, um, you know, your typical kind of, like, really dark key gangster stuff. But, you know, it's, at times, like, those moments, they kind of come out of nowhere in these, but, like, they're pretty ghoulish when they do. Um, but, like, the movie itself, you know, stylized, very fun. Um, okay, so they, they do keep it a little bit light outside of the violence? Yeah, the Korean films have a tendency to do uh, quite a bit of genre bending. So even serious films will have a bit of, like, either dark comedy or even, like, a surprising bit of light comedy, like, just tossed in there. I mean, you can see that in films like like Snowpiercer or, um, you know, so ones that... Um, uh, you know, Old Boy. Yeah, well, Old Boy does have bits of that. You know? I know. There's, like, silliness in it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think there's very few films, I think, that play it straight. Um, you know, the Wailing is a good example, too, you know? So, I love that fucking movie. Yeah. So, like, I think with that... Um, with that in mind, the movie itself doesn't really break new ground, but it's fairly entertaining, you know, just in the same way that, like, the Ocean's films are, you know? Cool. Nice. So there's three in the series? Yeah, three films and one television series. I've seen the movies, but not the television show. Okay. We'll have to check it out. Awesome. Anything? Yeah, it's in limited release in theaters this weekend, starting today, I think, so. Nice. Uh, anything else you got? Um, no, um, that's the most recent one. I was planning to watch the new, uh, Creepshow, uh, television series, but I didn't get to it this week, so. Is that on Shudder? Uh, yeah, just, just started, the first episode. Okay. Yeah, I have this thing so, with Shudder right now, where apparently they think I don't have a membership to Shudder, but I do, and I keep paying monthly, so I have to get on that and fix it, especially with October coming. I want to watch the horror yeah. movies. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be on it for uh, for a lot, I think, for the next month or so. Cool. Um, I have uh, yeah recently rewatched a few things that uh, you know that I, that I definitely would recommend. Um, you know, firstly, uh, you know, this is probably a couple of weeks ago, but it just keeps sticking in my head as something that I really really enjoy. Uh, I rewatched Stardust. 
Oh um, yeah, I love that film. Yeah, and and uh, you know, for for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, you know, Stardust is sort of a fairy tale esque adventure movie. Um, maybe in the vein of like a Princess Bride, but leans much heavier into the fantasy elements. Uh, it was directed by Matthew Vaughn, based on a story by Neil Gaiman. Um, it's it's uh, terrific. It's a lot. It's just a really good time. Yeah, I, I quite recommend that film too. I think uh, it's been a little while since I've seen it, but it's always a a welcome like revisit. Yeah, I've probably seen it at, at least like five or six times though. So, and if you're looking for something that's a little bit more cerebral, a little bit more challenging material, I also recently watched Upstream Color, which was uh, Shane Carruth's, I, I think it was 2006 movie, um, uh, about two people who uh, go through some very unusual circumstances and find one another and start to unravel a mystery about what happened to them. Uh, and that's that's about as basic as you can go. And this movie is... Uh, like I said, it's it's challenging. Um, there are no easy ways to interpret certain things in the film. It is an art house movie, but it's beautifully crafted. Um, it is incredibly well shot and edited. It's got a, a very good music score and sound design. And all of this was basically done by the same guy. Shane Carruth wrote it, directed it, produced it, stars in it, or co-stars in it. Um, edited the film himself, released the film through like his own like label, um, and uh, you know he's just like a one man band, uh, and and it's uh, it's a film that I very much enjoy for the the sort of puzzle aspects to the story because kind of like working it out as you watch the movie is is the fun of it, and it's it's you know the first time I watched it I I was much more confused. Uh, but uh, I, I think on this most recent rewatch, I was able to follow the plot because I haven't, I haven't seen it for years. But I was able to follow the plot very well and put things together much easier. But I kind of think that if I have one complaint about the movie, that I think that the, the resolution is mostly plot-related and not emotional. Um, so I kind of feel like the... Uh, the romantic connection between these two characters almost gets lost at the end of the film. Um, but aside from that, uh, I, I really enjoy it. Um, and, uh, it is, it is, I think one of the best science fiction movies of the new millennium. Man, that's pretty, uh, pretty high praise. I've never seen it myself. Where, where did you watch it? On? Um, I actually watched it on the criterion channel because it recently popped up as part of, um, Ryan Johnson, uh, who has a new movie coming out, Knives Out, um, which I'm sure we're both psyched for, uh, and recently directed Star Wars The Last Jedi, and he did Brick and Brothers Bloom and Looper. Um, he did a like a little segment with them, like Conversations With, uh, where he picked certain films out of the Criterion Collection to, to highlight and talk about their influences on him. And Upstream Color is actually not in the Criterion Collection, but he's, he was such an admirer of the film that he was able to actually, you know, push them to get a deal so that they could stream it on their site just for this. Um, you know, which I think is is great praise right there. Now, apparently he's friends with Shane Carruth, which I'm sure, you know, helps on that end of them making that deal. Um, but uh, it, it's going to be there only for a limited time. And although I did see the movie in theaters, like I said, I hadn't seen it for years and I, it was quite enjoyable to go back and revisit it. I mean, that's, 
that's a pretty cool thing to do. Like, you know, if you could get to the point where Criterion would invite you <laughs> to their offices and their closets um, to look at movies. Like, what's a movie that you think you would like them to, like, showcase on on the Criterion channel that they don't have the rights to? That's an excellent question, sir. Um, I, I think because I have had such a difficult time finding it, uh, there was a movie a few years ago by a Spanish filmmaker, or he might have been, I think he's Brazilian, uh, Esteban Sapir. I think, yes. I, I think I'm getting that right. Um, and the, the movie is called Lantana, which is uh, the aerial. And it is, it is a modern film that is sort of done as a silent film uh, about a town um, that gets sort of taken over by technology, by television, and, and they uh, essentially have no voices. And there is a particular character uh, in the film who, who does have a voice, and she sings you know, on television, and... Uh, and again, much like Stardust, I'm not going to do a very good job of actually conveying the plot of this movie, but visually, this thing is incredibly inventive. Um, and it feels like <sighs> Max Ophels meets Tim Burton. Like, <laughs> it's <laughs> like, you know, um, you know, with, with maybe, uh, uh, with maybe some Murnau thrown in or something like that. Um, but uh, it's not available in America. And I, I happen to find uh, what I consider not a great copy of it online and was able to watch it without English subtitles. And, you know, I enjoyed it, but I, I, I would love a good U.S. copy. So I think I would try to push Criterion to release that here. That's a good choice. That's a movie you've talked about uh, a lot, if I recall. Yeah, well, when I first discovered it uh, back when we were working at Suncoast, um, you know, it was something that I, I think for a couple of months, I was really actively pursuing. Uh, I even tried um, getting a hold of the director and the producer on social media, and uh, that's how I got the link to watch it online. Um, but the guy, the guy offered to send me like a DVD with English subtitles. But somehow, that never panned out, and I never, ne never ended up getting it. So yeah, I remember that story. So yeah. I was like wondering where the when you were talking earlier. I was like, I thought like uh, you had received a DVD from that guy, but I guess it never. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I I replied and gave him my information and never got it. I followed up once, and uh, and never got a response back. And so I I don't know if it's because they decided that they couldn't do that for me, uh, and just didn't want to come out and, you know, renege on that deal. Um, but, uh, you know, for whatever the reason, you know, I, I just hope it becomes available at some point because I'd really like to sit down and watch it and, you know, and, and understand everything that's going on. But it's a, such yeah. a, such a visual film that I, you know, that the, the broad strokes of the story are very easy to conceive. Um, sure. But Absolutely. yeah, so that, that would definitely be one that I would, I would go for. What about you? Um, well, I guess, like, it probably wouldn't be as difficult uh, for this to happen, but uh, I'm a really big fan of the Japanese director, Shunji Uai. I consider him one of the big modern Japanese um, new wave directors, um, and he's done some pretty successful mainstream films as well as um, art house 
um, productions, um, really challenging and unique stuff. Um, some of his films have actually been released by Home Vision Entertainment, just never officially put under the Criterion Collection moniker. Okay. Um, I think most people in the West don't know his work, but they've seen stuff that features his work in it. Um, most specifically, uh, a bit of music from a, a film was featured, from one of his films, was featured in Kill Bill Volume 1. Um, but he also writes music as well. So. Okay. Um, now, he did a film called Hannah and Alice from 2004, I want to say, which is basically about two schoolgirls who um, are best friends, and when one of them falls in love uh, with another student, the other girl decides to help her with like a scheme to get him to fall in love with her. Um, it sort of like a Sierra yeah, de Bergerac. Uh, well, maybe not really. It's a very uh, ostensibly the film's about like friendship between the girls. Okay. So I mean, like it's it's I don't want to say it's odd, but it's kind of low key. Uh, but it's very winning performances by the two leads, An Suzuki and Yu Aoi. Um, but uh, it's there. There's a moment in the film that's very beautiful, and it comes out of nowhere. The way I would describe it would be when you see art unexpectedly um, and you get kind of swept up in the moment. So that moment in particular um, also coalesced in one of the things I really like about Japanese dramas, which I call the moment of epiphany. Okay. Um, they do a bit of drama where like the emotional resonance kind of like hits like a crescendo. So those in that movie, those two scenes kind of hit together specifically for the one character that that scene involves. Um, and it's very, for me, it's a very magical moment. So, like, with that having had a previous HVE release, even a Region 1, but it's been pretty much lost, and no one ever really talks about it, um, I would love for them to do that um, on the Criterion, Criterion Channel as streaming. Um, years later, they also did um, an animated film directed by the, by Shinji Owai as well, uh, featuring the voice, uh, the actresses doing voices. Um but it's about their first meeting when one of the girls transfers into the school and, you know, when they're younger. So you kind of see them becoming friends at the end of that. Um, but it was, it's a testament because those care, those actresses um, were willing to re um, redo these roles like 10 years later, just for an animated film. Um, I'd be cool to do a criterion double, double pack kind of like lady Snowblood or what have you. Nice. Well, there you go. Shinji Wise Han and Alice. I recommend it. Awesome. All right, so let's move on to uh, the the apartment. Uh, the apartment was uh, my pick, uh, and this is um, a 1960 Billy Wilder movie uh, starring Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray about a young and ambitious uh, insurance worker uh, who tries to make it up the corporate ladder by lending his apartment out for various executives to have marital, marital indiscretions. Um, I guess, I guess that's okay for the short, short version. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. Had you seen the apartment before Cesar? Yes. I think I'd seen it. Um, I want to say 15 or more years ago. So it'd been quite a while. Like the movie itself wasn't, uh, um, brand new to me or didn't feel like fresh to me. But, uh, yeah, it was, there were certain, certainly bits that I'd forgotten, um, during this revisit for it. Yeah, me too. I, it's been, 
uh, it's probably been a decade or more since I've seen the film. So I was really happy to revisit it. Um, I think you, you had mentioned that you, did you pick it up on, is it an Arrow Blu-ray? Yeah, there was, I guess it actually now it's out of print, but uh, Arrow USA released a really large special edition of Blu-ray with book and stuff. I myself didn't go through any of the special features. I kind of got this viewing in by the skin of my teeth yesterday evening. So um, I only was able to, to get through the film itself. Okay. Well, uh, you know, this, this, and if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, just to set this up for people, you know, this is not an obscure movie. <laughs> this movie won Best Picture. <laughs> um, this... Uh, is it's, this, just old. it's just old. Is this the first Best Picture winner that we've actually discussed for a full episode? Um, I think it might be. For this iteration, at least, definitely. I, I think a couple of them have been nominated for Best Picture, like, you know, like Dog Day Afternoon. Um, but I think this might be the first one that we've done that actually won Best Picture. But yeah, this was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Uh, it won five, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, uh, Best Art Direction slash Set Decoration for Black and White Movie, and Best Film Editing. Um, it was nominated but did not win uh, Best Actor for Jack Lemmon, Best Actress for Shirley MacLaine, uh, Supporting Actor for Jack Crucian, uh, Black and White Cinematography for Joseph Lachelle, who does some phenomenal work in the movie, uh, and Sound uh, Gordon Sawyer. So the pedigree on this is pretty great. And this is kind of a, you talked about genre bending, uh, you know, when you were talking about Korean films earlier, you know, it, back in 1960, it, it wasn't as common to find a movie that kind of bounces back and forth between comedy and pretty heavy drama the way that this movie does. Yeah, it does tackle some pretty serious subject matter, especially in the last half of the film. Yeah, so so this is, you know, I mean, you know, Billy Wilder directed this and co-wrote it, uh, and, you know, I mean, he did, you know, a couple of what are considered to be two of the best film noirs ever made in Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity, uh, but he also made some very light fare, like Some Like It Hot, um, and The Apartment is kind of like, you know, right in the middle here. Uh, on this particular viewing, what struck you uh, about the film? Um, I think, well, certainly, like I said, it had been 15 years or so since the last time I viewed it. Um, everyone always kind of um, matures as a, as a viewer. I think I appreciated quite a bit more the, the snappy dialogue from Jack Lemmon. Yeah, he's so, um, he's so good in this. Yeah, uh, his immediate responses uh, with a quick kind of like side joke, but never ever in a snide way um, were quite a bit more enjoyable to me this time than I remember being the last time. Not that I didn't enjoy it then previously, but I, I appreciated um, the writing noticeably more. Yeah. I, I think the, the writing is, is terrific. And I think one of the things that I noticed on this particular viewing, uh, cause I said, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But no lines, no bits, uh, no scenes go to waste at all. Uh, everything has a purpose, and in many cases, a lot of things that are referenced in the beginning of the film become important later in the film. And yes. uh, 
Uh, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on on many of those as we continue our discussion. Um, you know, but for example, um, you know, Jack Lemon talks about uh, sleeping pills early in the movie, and that becomes an important plot point later in the film. Uh, you know, and that that's the kind of thing that I'm that I'm talking about. Um, you know, I, there's there's quite a few things that just get set up in the first half and then paid off later in the film. That one is probably the earliest reference. I think that that works in that respect. Um, there's a few more that happen a little bit later on. Um, the motif of like the record player. Yeah. And uh, you know, I don't remember if there are. Uh, like there's a couple props that pop up in the film towards the end, specifically the last the last act of the film. I don't recall if I remember seeing them being placed purposefully in the first half of the film or not ahead of time. Like, um, do you do you recall like the the tennis racket being set up there in the kitchen early on? Uh, no, I don't. But I, I'm sure I'm sure if you went back, you know, and and looked at his scenes in the kitchen early in the film, that you could probably spot it. But you're right; it doesn't become important until Miss Kubelik is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the sleeping pills, like the Arthur Murray dance thing gets repeated. I think three times in the movie, where you know he talks about taking dance lessons when he's talking to Miss Kubelik early on, um, and then he describes himself as an Arthur Murray graduate to uh, what is her name, Margie, the girl he picks up at the bar. And then, of course, they dance uh, in an extended scene, um, you know, and get thrown out of a bar <laughs> on uh, on Christmas Eve, I guess, right? Yeah, um, that's the way to spend it in New, uh, in New York City. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, you know, like uh, Miss Kubelik, uh, when she's talking to Baxter, who is the Jack Lemmon character, um, who is, is Cece Baxter, which is C for Calvin, C for Clifford? Uh, but uh, most people call, call most people call him Bud, but that's actually not true. Most people call him Buddy Boy in a very almost a demeaning manner. The, the executives call him Buddy Boy. Um, well, he's also um, very nebbish. Yeah, uh, character though. So I mean, that's part of part of the film is is growing from being uh, some kind of yes man into uh, you know, his own man, uh, a mensch. Yes. Yeah, as Dr. Dreyfus will refer to him. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I, I mean, I really like the way this movie begins. Um, I like the opening voiceover and the, the big shots of New York that kind of establish that you're in a giant city and he is just one person in a city, in a building with 30-plus thousand people, and we really get to know him in the 60 seconds or so that he talks at the beginning you know, we get we get a feel for his personality and how uh, sort of upbeat and busy that he is. Uh, but we also get a sense that he's sort of stationed below where he wants to be. Um, you know, and, and then he introduces the idea that he has uh, a problem with the apartment. Although uh, the only thing that we know about it is that he says, I can't always get in when I want to. Um, but but I love this this opening VO uh, you know, there's a ton of like facts and numbers in it, and and the specificity of the whole thing is very amusing, and it really paints us uh, a picture of his character. I think. Yeah, the information he gives you is tons of it. 
you know, just just like statistics and everything. But ultimately, it's never important. It just sets up him as kind of uh, an exacting person, uh, very you know, slightly neurotic. Yes. Um, which I think um, works really well because the first time you ever see him visually, he's in he's in that center shot, surrounded by desk. He's in the center, but everyone's working, and then it slowly fades to him doing his overtime work. Yeah. Uh, which, which I think really visually um, lands what type of person this character is. Yeah, he's just some schnook that works in the office. <laughs> As uh, maybe, maybe with a with a little bit more going on. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's how he's referred to in that early scene um, when the the executive is leaving his apartment with the girl and. Uh, and she's like, whose apartment is this? And he's like, it's just some schnook who works in the office. Uh, and, and schnook, for, for anyone who doesn't know, is, is someone who is easily duped, a fool, an unimportant person. Um, you know, so that's, that's how they view him. They use him for this apartment. And in his mind, I think he, you know, he thinks that he's also using them for a chance at advancement within the company, which is what he really wants. Um, but you know, it's not, not until later in the movie that he realizes that, uh, that he's going about it all wrong. So, mm-hmm. um, well, I think the part, the part when they reveal that he's listening to it the whole time, it's like, ugh. <laughs> it's like, you, you kind of feel like, oh, you know what they're doing, don't you, bud? But, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Lemon is terrific in this, um. I think some of you mentioned, you know, like some of his reaction shots and things like that. I mean, his his comedic timing and his just just general acting talent because he does some great like dramatic stuff in this as well. Is is just, I mean, I I would be inspired if I was a performer by his performance. Um, you know, some of the things he does. You know, like after he gets his cold, um, his voice completely changes. You know, he stammers more often. Uh, his his voice gets extra nasally, and uh, you know, like, and the way he uses props, like in the scene with uh, Sheldrake, when he is in Sheldrake's office for the first time, um, and I'm kind of jumping around, but like he thinks he's going to the office because he's going to get promoted because <clears throat> the four guys he's been loaning his apartment to. Are, are telling him over and over again, like, you know, you keep doing this, we're going to put in a good word with Mr. Sheldrake. You know, I'm putting you as one of the top 10 efficiencies in the company, so you're moving up, kid. You know, that sort of thing. So he gets the call to go into the big guy's office, and he gets up there, and he thinks that it's going to be a really positive experience where he's going to get promoted. And once he gets there, he realizes that this is like an inquisition. <laughs> and the Fred McMurray character, who I love, is sort of like interrogating him about like why he's so popular and why all these people keep telling him, you know, that they, they should promote or move him into a different department. Um, and he relays this story about, uh, about somebody on a different floor having like a gambling ring and how he called the bookie ring. Yeah. And how he, he called, uh, he basically called the authorities, um, on the, on the day of the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Christ and so it, Lemon gets, you know, uh, Baxter, I should say, gets much more uncomfortable and he starts to really kind of fiddle and, and, and squirm in his chair 
And, yeah, and he definitely, <laughs> he, when he's sitting in a chair, he's confident, but then slowly his elbows and his knees come together. Yeah, and <laughs> and he uses props like his tissues and the nasal spray. Apparently, when he shoots the nasal spray up by accident and it goes right by Fred McMurray, apparently there was only one take of that, and that was Lemon improvising, and it, it turned out so great that they used it in the movie. Yeah, McMurray like like just doing a side glance and then not reacting to it was pretty great too. I can't imagine that happening and him actually not busting out laughing or something like that. Like, I mean, that's a that's a great piece of acting by McMurray too. Mm-hmm. Um, He's pretty good in the film as well. So I, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead here. No, it's I fine. Just, I, I, just, I throw that out there right now. I think he's great. I mean, I mean, obviously, Lemon has the 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 largest role and and the most to play in the movie, I think, uh, what McMurray does is very difficult to pull off. I mean, you got to remember that Fred McMurray was America's favorite television dad patriarch, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and of course he had played a character like this before in a Billy Wilder movie for Double Indemnity, you know. But he he was known as being sort of like a good guy. And so to kind of be able to turn that 180 degrees, it's like the equivalent of like Tom Hanks playing an evil person, which of course Tom Hanks has played, you know, rougher characters than we're used to from him as well, like in Road to Perdition and things like that. But I mean, you know, McMurray is, he's just so good. Going back and forth between the good guy and some despicable scumbag is incredibly tough. Yeah, like I wouldn't say that in this movie he's snake-like because he's he's especially in that um, uh, I guess questioning scene with Lemon as your introduction to him as a character. He's very he's very charming, very, very good cadence. Um, his facade is very welcoming, I guess you could say. You know. Um, yeah, he's think, he's very confident. Yeah, he's sophisticated, um, you know, but he's also sort of dismissive and condescending. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love, and it's just a little, little detail, but I love the way he smokes his cigarette in the movie. He almost like sips each drag. Like it, it's, it's very specific, you know, there's never a long drag and like a, a long blowout or anything. He just like, it's almost like he's sipping tea or something like that. It's just very short. Um, Almost like he, like the character wants to smoke a cigarette, but doesn't actually want to smoke a cigarette. But because smoking cigarettes was cool back then, that's why he does it. Like that's <laughs> that's the feeling that I get from it. Um, well, I mean, like, you you also, um, you know, like when he does smoke too, though, like there's there's always like a bit of you mentioned superiority. Like he does it, and you know he'll shoot it around, and he'll be the only one smoking. You know, outside of like, I guess, uh, like the New Year scene, I guess too. You know. Yeah. So it's like I'll be able to relax, but when you're in my presence, you will not be. Yes, he he definitely uh, he definitely holds the power in the room. Yeah, but like uh, I think uh, for him, in particular, like he's the type of guy who always has an excuse too. Um, he's the guy with so much to lose, and he's always got, you know, up into up to a point, the right words to kind of control people um and you know there's the moment towards the end of the film when he's asking for the key after he's been separated with his wife 
uh, we're jumping around again. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, where he, where he, he definitely puts his foot down. Um, and, you know, we know he's that type of character, but in that moment, he, he feels particularly sinister, you know? Yes, he, I mean, he's, I, I think he's terrific. I, I think it's one of those kind of, it's one of those roles where you're not going to get a lot of recognition for the work that you're doing, but there are very specific choices that go into, you know, the way he delivers a line or the way he positions his body or just the look that he gives um, and the way that, that he's shot in the film as well, um, you know, that all go into creating this character. And, and he's, he's an imposing presence, you know, um, which is why, you know, obviously Miss Kubelik fell for him in the first place. Yes. Um, let's talk about Shirley MacLaine. Um, for me, I mean, there are there are two Shirley MacLaines. <laughs> There's Shirley MacLaine from this era, you know, like this movie and Ocean's Eleven and stuff like that. And then there's Shirley MacLaine from the later years, like Terms of Endearment Shirley MacLaine. And there's nothing in the middle for me. Like I like I, I really haven't seen too many of Shirley MacLaine's movies. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm in the same boat. Like I, there are definitely films where she appears in, um, and I do tend to like her. But aside from like her very early work and even like you said mentioned terms of endearment like a lot of the era of her of her filmography is actually pretty blank to me um i only really know her as a classic hollywood actress and uh walter mitty's mother yeah <laughs> um, um, in 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 this film though she's um she's especially uh in her introduction she's absolutely adorable i think um you know obviously as a character the film shows her with um like any any person's emotional baggage and uh, but like when she's introduced she's very you know whip smart um very cute um definitely someone i could see you know baxter falling for um just with their brief interaction and in elevator you know yeah and i think it, it was really smart to uh we, we don't meet her until probably 20 minutes into the movie almost um, it's yeah. not, not till after Baxter shows up for work with a cold after being yes. in central park in the rain all night, <laughs> thanks to, uh, Mr. Dobish. Um, you know, so, so he's, he's in a weakened position and that allows us to appreciate more the kindness that Fran Kubelik shows him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's, she's very cute. She's very sweet. You know, she seems cheery and friendly to everybody. Um, you know, and even uh, I think I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, but even when Mister Kirkaby like grabs her butt as he's leaving the elevator, she sort of handles it really well. She keeps her her composure. Um, she doesn't really get too upset, but she sort of handles him and lets him know that that's not okay, and that uh, you know one of these days she's going to retaliate and she, she does it in a humorous way where she kind of like pulls her sleeve out, like that she's going to close the elevator doors and chop his arm off. Um, you know, and I think, I think that that's a really, uh, a really great trait for her to play off in, in the movie, um, that she, she's sort of, uh, with the exception of McMurray's character, Sheldrake, she's sort of unflappable the rest of the time. 
Yeah, she also calls him out in front of everyone, too. So whether that had any effect at all to, like, you know, I mean, 1960s uh, chauvinistic culture is definitely different compared to today's. Um, I mean, it still exists, of course, but back then, whether that had an effect or not, her not being afraid to, you know, call that out in front of, like, an elevator full of people. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's noticeable, too. Well, but I, I think... I think you hit the nail on the head when you were like that the culture was different because I think back then uh, the women would just be like, well, that's a man for you. And all the men that's would be like, is, yeah. yeah. And then all the men would just kind of like laugh, like, you know, um, but I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into, you know, to all of that, but I, I, I do think that it's, uh, it's it sort of, it illuminates her character a little bit in that scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and then, that's her first, that's the first time you see her. So it's, you know, that's an important impression. Yeah, and then later when Baxter is ready to go up to Sheldrake's office and he runs into the elevator and he's telling her that, you know, he's a man on the move and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, and, and he gets out of the elevator and says, you know, do I do I look okay? And she says, yeah, but she gives him her flower. Um, and that that even takes his his mood up to like, he's already happy because he thinks he's getting that promotion, but it takes his mood even like it amps it up a notch. Not only is he getting promoted at work, but he's getting somewhere with her or so he thinks he is. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, everything's coming up millhouse, So they say, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you buy that? She's so in love with, with Sheldrake. I mean, it's hard to say, like, I, I feel that like, the relationship that they have on screen uh, is when we when we meet her had been over for a while. So yeah. when you see the introduction, uh, when you're introduced to the idea that they have a previous relationship and he hopes to rekindle that, which is inside this Chinese restaurant. Right. Um, I think that she's able to deliver a performance that shows that she still has interest, but does have reservations. And I think that's something that carries through most of the film. Um, I think you hear a little bit of her personal character history um, after um, after the event, I guess you could say, once we get to it. Okay. That shows that you know she's a broken character, but you know everyone's got a facade. Who knows what the two months that she talks about was like between the two of them. Um, but within that moment, I believe it. You know, I think it's yeah. easy to fall in love. It's easy to make the wrong choices because of love. Um, I, and she happens to be someone who loves very strongly. It seems. Yeah. I, I also think because she mentions that it was two months during the summer where his family was away, that he couldn't leave because of work, but they were, his wife and kids were away. So you know, it would have given him the freedom to be more relaxed uh, and more focused on on a budding romance uh, with the elevator girl um, than he can be now that his family is back. <clears throat> so I, I think their dynamic has changed, and I think that she is still kind of like hooked by the memory of those great times that they shared over the summertime. Uh, but I kind of think that she she's she's chained to it she can't get away from it she won't allow herself to get away from it but i think that she knows that this is doomed like that's 
that there's a lot of melancholy in her regarding their relationship. Even, even once he says he's going to leave his wife, she never gets as happy as she does. Like for example, in that final scene when she's running to Baxter's apartment, um, yeah, like the, the, it's like the, it's like a drug addict needing more drugs to get high, you know, like the same amount doesn't get you there. And the same amount of Sheldrake is not getting her as satisfied and as happy as she once was with him, uh, that it's been soured uh, a little bit. Um, which is why that final moment for me, I like, I, I got a little bit emotional watching that final moment when, when New Year's Eve, when she's there with Sheldrake and they're singing Old Lang Syne um, and, you know, they get to that line where it's like, we'll take a, a cup of kindness. Um, and, you know, Billy Wilder is such a specific person language wise that I don't think it's a, a coincidence that she has her realization about Baxter um, during the, the line of the, of the song where they're talking about kindness, even though they're referring to an alcoholic beverage in the song. I think that the word kindness kind of strikes her and she realizes that she, at, the, at that point, that she can love him, whether she does at that moment or not, but she knows she needs to leave Sheldrake. Um, and then when it cuts to her as a close-up running to Baxter's apartment, like that moment for me is, is a very powerful moment, um, especially because... The cinematography in the film is fantastic, but there's not a lot of close-ups. In fact, there's very few close-ups in the movie, and they, they kind of leave that, that great close-up of her, even though it's a profile shot of her running, until like the very end. Um, and I think like, that uh, really works. For me, that one scene, like just before that scene, when um, uh, Fred McMurray turns around and her seat is, ve- her seat is empty, and he calls out to her, that's that's a moment that was very satisfying for me just before it cuts to her running towards Baxter's apartment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The empty seat thing, like, you know, it shows that, you know, that's, she's, she's made her decision and, you know, when it cuts to her running, that's certainly the, uh, um, I guess like the visual confirmation, but I think that empty seat speaks, speaks a lot that she's, she's decided not to be there for him. She's not, she's not just his. uh, And so for him, he's lost his family and he's lost his, mistress Good, yeah bitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he he gets his comeuppance in spades there at the end um and uh i we're like i said we're bouncing all around but like um i want to i want to go back real quick to um well obviously shirley mclean's character fran kubelik um has a back and forth relationship with sheldrake and he tells her he's going to leave his wife and that he keeps stringing her along. And then they have, they have a fight on Christmas when Baxter's out of the apartment getting drunk at the bar with Margie. And um, he makes her feel cheap uh, because he didn't buy her a Christmas present. And instead of giving her a Christmas present, he gives her a $100 bill and sticks it in her wallet. And, or her purse, and she feels like a whore. And as a result, when he leaves, she takes a half a bottle of sleeping pills out of Baxter's medicine cabinet and tries to commit suicide. Um, I was reminded of the Piper Laurie scene in The Hustler watching that. Mm-hmm. 
and and how she essentially commits suicide um, after an interaction with the character of Bert, the George C. Scott character. So for me, like I, I that that scene connected those two films for me. Um, but I was I was even more surprised when Baxter relays a story about how he previously tried to commit suicide after a failed romance later in the film. Um, what was your reaction to that? Because it's a strange tone for that scene. I think they walk it really well, but I like I would have been afraid to play it that way because it's 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 light. You know, the way he tells the story is not is not super dark. He's doing it to kind of reassure her, almost like saying, "Don't worry about it. Everybody kind of does this." <laughs> but it's well, super fucking dark. Wrong. While she's in the bed, she says, "I fouled up my life." So that's certainly a response to you know her thinking that like everything having to face the rest the next day will be impossible. So by him relaying that story, like you said, it's light. But he he does it in a way like her response is that did you just make that up and you know certainly i feel that that was my first impression too but you know like i said you know love, love can be passionate it can be you know it can be tough it can be whatever you want it or don't want it to be and i think in that moment you're right like he does do it to console her and to put them in the same boat, you know, make himself more because I, you know, at this point, they really still don't know each other, um, not not in any real way. But uh, I think in doing so, that softens his character. I mean, he's he's kind of viewed by her as an agent of um, Fred McMurray, yeah, you know, because that's his apartment. So I think it's probably close in that moment, outside of that, where he. Um, she starts to see him as Baxter, the guy from the elevator, as opposed to, you know, the guy whose apartment she's been, you know, having these trysts with um, the boss. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess this is this is just that classic story about, you know, a girl who always falls for the wrong kind of guy and the nice guy who pines <laughs> over her. Mm-hmm. You know, and in this case, they, how they I mean, poetically, I guess how they both feel the same type of heartbreak. You know, and that's like a universal theme. I think everybody can relate to that, you know. Uh, we've all had our hearts broken. Uh, and, you know, the idea in the film that uh, things will eventually get better and that uh, you'll eventually find someone else and reconnect and rekindle uh, that part of you that can love is a, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great sentiment. Um, who knows what statistics... I mean, it could have been something uh, that was pretty big in the news suicides in the 1960s or, you know, late 1950s. Um, so that could have been something that was present in the writer's minds and, you know, Wilder and, uh, I can't remember his co-writer's name, um, in their minds while they were writing it, just because it was something that was a current event situation. Plus New York city has always had a pretty large statistic of suicides compared to other cities, you know, just, you know, by virtue of size as well. Yeah. I, could have, plus, I guess, you know, you mentioned The Hustler, you know, suicide attempts and stuff um, definitely bring some dramatic gravitas. I mean, when you find out that she's, when she looks into like the shaving mirror and sees a reflection of the sleeping pills um, as a callback from earlier on um, in the movie, um, for someone who hadn't seen the film before, that's 
that's kind of like, oh, you know, is she going to do this? And when she fills up that glass of water that's and it fades, you feel nothing but worry for her. So, I mean, that's that's a strong visual, um, especially the aftermath of it, too, because the they linger on saving her life, you know? Yeah, yeah, and when, and when Baxter opens the door and realizes she's there, she's just laying on the bed, and for a first-time watcher, you don't know if she's alive. He could, you know, he could have walked into that apartment and she could have been dead. Um, yes. And that would have, that would have definitely taken, uh, taken it into, uh, into darker material. Um, but, uh, you know, funny, funny, uh, story. I don't know, um, if you knew this, I did not know this. Um, but there are two specific things that sort of inspired this movie. Um, and one of them was, uh, the writer's name was... Uh, it's initials. It's I-A-L Diamond, but they called him yes. Izzy. Izzy Diamond. Um, he had a friend whose ex-girlfriend committed suicide in his bed after they broke up. Um, so that that's where part of this came from. But another, another part of it, or a, a, a sort of weird Hollywood tie-in inspiration, was that uh, actress Joan Bennett's husband, who was a producer named Walter Wanger... He suspected Bennett of having an affair with her agent, uh, which he was a, guy, a, a pretty powerful agent at the time. His name was Jennings Lang. Uh, so Bennett's husband, Wanger, hired private detectives to follow them, and once he obtained proof of their affair, he confronted them and shot Long in the testicles. <laughs> now, obviously, that doesn't happen in the apartment, but uh, it eventually... It was eventually revealed that Lang and Bennett were using the apartment of a low-level employee in Lang's firm. So, like, that that's sort of, like, where the inspiration of, like, exploiting the, uh, the aspirations of a low-level employee in order to, to get what you want kind of a thing. Well, I'm, I'm glad he drew the line at the ball-busting. <laughs> Well, hey, I mean, the guy made a full recovery and went on to become a producer and did, like, you know, a bunch of movies in the 70s, so. Um, but uh, <laughs> pretty terrible story, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, well, like, um, I guess back to the movie. Uh, I was I was talking about, like, the, um, you know, they linger on, I guess, Dr. Dreyfus. Um being called to help her once uh, Baxter finds her uh, kind of comatose in his bed. Yeah. Uh, that sequence is quite good. Um, you mentioned close-ups uh, earlier. Uh, while Dreyfus is uh, kind of like um, tending uh, to Fran, he's uh, there's a, a short close-up where you see um, Baxter's face like full of worry, sweat. Um, so that's the first thing I thought of when you mentioned, I never realized initially how was very limiting the amount of close-ups in the film until you mentioned it during yeah. our discussion earlier but that was the scene that popped up in my head specifically um right after you mentioned it yeah I, I think the camera work is actually really solid it's not showy in any in any way um you know like that scene in the mirror with the pills that you mentioned is actually probably the showiest shot in the film um but there's there's some great camera movement uh and not like really long takes or anything like that but like uh, the tracking shot at the end with McLean is a good one. Uh, that the tracking shot 
outside cuts into a tracking shot inside where she runs up the steps and then you hear the bang and she's great in that moment like super great in that moment where she looks as happy as she's ever been in her life and then she hears that pop of the champagne bottle and she thinks the worst and she stops dead in her tracks and her expression completely changes and then she runs to the door um that's all one shot which is great um and I think that there's a lot of darkness in this movie. They they don't overlight this, even though, like, in a lot of ways, the studio looked at this as a comedy. Um, a lot of times, the apartment is very dark inside. Um, well, you mentioned um, good camera work. Uh, a sequence that I really enjoy um, was the first time he gets into his apartment. Um, they do a good job of showing like the geography of the apartment, you know, he goes to the, he hangs up his coat and hat, goes to the kitchen, goes to the um, living room, you know, goes to the bedroom. You know, I think you see the layout and I got to say, you know, uh, I don't know what apartments are like in New York city right now, but by all accounts, they're pretty extensive. That seems like a pretty nice place for a single guy. Yeah, absolutely. Couch, couch, kitchen, bedroom, uh, you know, big ass television set. Um, not not big in screen size, but big in girth. Yeah, yeah, and they don't like it, they don't over seems like a pretty sweet 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 spot. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Across from Central Park too. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, that opening that opening scene, I thought it had some pretty great stuff. Like kind of, um, I wouldn't say the apartment itself is its own character. Um, in the film, that's something. Nothing. I wouldn't say anything as pretentious as something like that. No, I wouldn't but, go that far either. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's it's important to know the layout of it since so much since uh, so much happens in each different room. I guess. Yeah. You know? There's a there's a great shot when Kirkaby and the telephone operator girl are coming out, and he's been waiting for them. So he's been kind of standing outside the steps, just waiting for the light to go off and for them to come out. We don't know this, but the elevator or the telephone operator girl works in his building um you know so he hides himself like down the neighbor stairs for the lower level and as they come out they become large in the frame and he goes back and becomes really small in the frame and i really like that that shift in power dynamic like in that shot and it's uh i'm kind of moving my hands like you can see me but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like you know, this one comes forward this one goes back um but no i mean like that's that's something that um i know like hitchcock used in a bunch of his early movies when they they would shift power dynamics in the film they would have one person go into the background of the frame and one person come into the foreground of the frame to get larger um and i, I think that was effectively used in that particular moment um but yeah i i, I mean Visually, I think the film looks really good. It's it's not high contrast black and white, like not like a film noir or something like that. It's um, and it's not super naturalistic, like a, like documentary style. It's kind of in the middle, um, and it's not very high contrast. So there's a lot of gray in in the actual picture. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's really solid work. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of two shots and three shots and short camera moves that'll take a single shot into a a two shot or a three shot. Um, 
you know, it's it's very economical, I think, as far as the camera work goes. Yeah, I mean, I, it's probably afforded that because, I mean, everything, most of the film looks like a shot on set. Um, yeah. You know that giant set of him, um, the actual, like, insurance office of floor 19 that he works on um, uh-huh. is actually uh, like a forced perspective. Apparently, they didn't have enough studio space or money, um, so they actually built a smaller set, and in order to make it look bigger, they used forced perspective, and they would put taller actors in the front and medium-sized actors in the middle and short actors in the back, and they actually had midgets in on desks behind them, and then they actually had like cutouts of like stick figures at desks behind them. So what looks like it's an entire floor of an office building is probably like 50 feet. Yeah, it's a, it's a strong shot. I think yeah. really well done. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I, like, I never would have caught that watching the movie. Like if I, if I hadn't read, you know, done a little background on it, like I would have never known that. Whereas, like, certainly the people in the foreground have a lot more activity. There's a lot of like cranking of like those machines and, and like teleprinters and calling phones, dialing rotaries, yeah. you know? So, like, you, your eyes aren't drawn to like the distance. Um, can we talk about um, minor supporting roles? Like, I really like um, uh, Dr. Dreyfus, played by Jack Crucian. Yeah. Is this is. Is that pronunciation? He's he's um, really great. Yeah, he and he and his wife, um, who is Naomi Stevens as Mildred Dreyfus, are um, they infuse quite a bit of humor uh, into the film. Um, of course, you know, with Baxter having loaned out his key to executives, he has a reputation for being a ladies' man because. Um, there seems to be a lot of activity going on in his bedroom at night. Yeah. His apartment at night. Um, so they have some pretty great interactions. And um, the wife, um, Ms. Dreyfus, in particular, is very kind of um, judgmental about Baxter's lifestyle. Now, Baxter, for his part, um, in order to protect like his superiors, he kind of like takes it all, I wouldn't say necessarily in stride, um, but he, he takes it on the chin because it's um, – Towards his own goals of moving up in the company. Yeah, I, um, I think he's he's very protective of uh, Sheldrake's and the other executives' reputations. He wants to be a loyal company man. Um, he wants to be one of the boys. Like, there's a scene early in the movie, right after we are first introduced to Miss Kubelik, um, where he and Mister Kirkaby are sort of like engaging in a little banter about Miss Kubelik. And of course, uh, you know, Baxter is much kinder and less offensive and, uh, you know, than Kirkaby is. Kirkaby is kind of, you know, uh, a bit of a swine. Um, and, uh, you know, and he's talking about how, he, you know, he'd like to get her out of the office and things like that. And he's like how everyone's tried. And, and of course, Baxter says something, you know, like, well, maybe you just haven't tried the right um, approach, you know. But he he wants to be engaged with them. He wants to be one of them. Um, so I think throughout the movie, uh, like you said, taking it on the chin. Yeah, I mean he he really gets uh, he he really gets it for for being you know 
the ladies' man, the playboy. You know, I, he'd he'd rather be known as a playboy than a pimp, I guess. You know, for for pimping out his apartment and stuff like that. Um, but really, he's just protecting his chances for advancement, I guess. Yeah. Um, but there's one moment at the end where, because I, you kind of feel sorry for him, and you kind of wonder why he doesn't stand up for himself, and you you understand, I guess, why, but you want him to make that change earlier in the film. You're pulling for him. But um, even at the end of the movie, when he's talking to the doctor, and he's moving out of the apartment. It's like at the very end. And the doctor's like, you know, what's going on? What happened with that girl? He says something like, you know, me and girls, doc, you know, easy come, easy go. And I think at that moment, like his insistence on maintaining the charade and protecting, you know, everyone around him, in my eyes, at least it goes from pathetic, which I think it is earlier in the film to almost admirable. Um, that he's willing to kind of see it through that far. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it that way. I mean, like you said, you want him to make that change, particularly, you know, during the uh, the suicide attempt. Um, you want him, why doesn't he just tell the doctor, like, this is the, this is your chance to come clean, you know? I mean, this could get really serious if something happens, uh, if something happens to, to Shirley MacLaine. Yeah. Like, um, why wouldn't you just, you know, it's a doctor, a doctor who saves lives. Why wouldn't you... You know, come clean at that point, particularly, you know, but I guess you do get the great moments with um, Ms. Dr- Mrs. Dreyfus like the day after, too. But, yeah, you're right. I think in that moment, uh, it shows uh, his propensity to kind of see it through, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think I think at that moment, he is being a mensch. Yeah. Even though those guys don't deserve it. They're dicks. No, but I think in that moment, it's more about protecting her. Cause what, what does he care about them at that point? He's already quit. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at, at that point, you know, I guess, I guess the line, e- easy come, easy go, you know, he thought the two days they spent together at Christmas that they would have a future together. And then the Sheldrake character leaves his wife or gets kicked out of his house, I guess, because of his, uh, his secretary. Um, thank, thank the Lord for that girl. What's her name? Ms. Olsen. <laughs> Ms. Olsen. There you go. <laughs> I don't remember what the actress's name is. Though. I, I know, but like that scene where she sort of eavesdrop eavesdrops on his call and then makes the call to his wife as, after he's fired her. Um, that's a satisfying moment too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What are you still doing here? I'm just making a private call. Well, she she sort of redeems herself because earlier in the movie she seems very petty when she's drunk at the uh, the office Christmas party, and she kind of I wouldn't say corners, but she kind of pulls Cuba Cuba like aside, and she's like, you know, it used to be me, and then after me it was this person, and you know, so like she details the long history of affairs that Sheldrake has had, and it really makes um, Kubelik feel low and what i love about that sequence is um jack lemon's character baxter pulls her into his office and has no idea what's going on you know he doesn't realize that she has all of a sudden been taken down a peg and uh and she's like i need to get back to my post and he says something like i've got a lot of pull with personnel do you know mr sheldrake because we're good friends (laughs) (laughs) and then to even put more salt in the wound 
and this, this is the piece de resistance of this scene, is that he pulls out a Christmas card that Sheldrake sent him, and it's Sheldrake with his happy family on the front. And it's like a <laughs> dagger into her heart. <laughs> well, she, she unknowingly returns the favor when uh, she gives him the mirror, though, so. Yes, that's true. That's true. That that is a that is a heartbreaking scene. I That's think. a a real a tough realization for Baxter. It really is. Going back to Miss Olsen, I'm just gonna jump back to that. The actress' name was Edie Adams. Okay. Um, she has that great line after she's fired, where she says, "You were cruel enough to make me sit at that desk for four years as each new model walked by." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah really great line. That actually, that's a beautiful line, and that, that sums up like like how despicable he is as a character like you know and 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 the the impact that he's had on these girls where you know he may think that they're all casual flings but for a lot of these women it was a very real relationship that you know that they basically had torn their heart out with um and then for her to have to sit there and watch him continue indiscretions with other women was was very hurtful, you know, and I, I, you're right. That's, that's just a great, great line. I like all of the tap dancing that he has to do to get keys to people and to reshuffle schedules and everything. The one scene where he has to reshuffle all the schedules between the three or four executives in an attempt just to free up his own apartment for himself to rest when he has a cold is a really great scene where he has to keep calling people back and switch Wednesday to Thursday and Thursday to Friday. Um, and it really shows how far he'll go to keep everybody else happy. Um, you know, when he could easily just cancel the one appointment and say, sorry, dude, I got a cold and there's no way this is going to work out. Um, but he's willing to jump through all of those hoops because he, you know, he really does have a little bit of ambition in him. Yeah. That seems, uh, yeah, I think like the first half, the first, half hour of the movie is very funny with sequences like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, other supporting characters like Dr. Dreyfus and Mrs. Dreyfus, but the one guy that's actually missing from that scene where he's, um, juggling appointment times is the character of Dobish, who I, I really love. Ray, Ray Walston is terrific in many other things. He's Mr. Hand in fast times, at Ridgemont high. Uh, he's one of the, the heavies in Silver Streak. He's he's just been in a ton of stuff, and he's one of my favorite character actors. I love him. Mm-hmm. And the way he says "buddy boy" is the best. <laughs> <laughs> What's he done for us lately? <laughs> yeah, that's that's another time where he t- that's where he literally takes it on the chin right there. Is one, when they send her brother in law to his his place, and. Uh, you know, she says, I took sleeping pills. And he says, well, why did you take sleeping pills? And then Baxter, like, immediately steps in and says, because of me. And he says, what? And he says, who else? And he and he gets knocked out. Or not knocked out, but knocked down. Um, and uh, and when she kisses him on the forehead, uh, he, he just has the most, the most beautiful, love-struck expression on his face. It's awesome. <laughs> well, you know, pain and love going hand-to-hand. Yeah. All right, and with that, I think we should wrap this baby up. Uh, so this has been a great conversation about the apartment. Next week, Cesar and I will be discussing uh, the original 1950s The Blob, um, featuring a young Steve McQueen. 
Um, you can find Cesar on Twitter at Junior Biho. You can find him on filmsmash.com. You can find me on Twitter at Setting the Frame. Uh, and so we will see you guys uh, next week. Thanks, Cesar. Thanks, CJ. Bye, everyone. Bye. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by Podbean. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.